welcome back to Beyond the Veil, a podcast all about Harry Potter and mental health. I'm your host, Madison Ford. I hope everyone is having a lovely holiday season if you celebrate. Before we get into today's interview, I just want to take a moment to reiterate some of the messages that we've been putting out on our social media lately. After J.K. Rowling's transphobic comments on Twitter, I and the rest of the Beyond the Veil team are still thinking of all our trans, non-binary, gender-fluid listeners and loved ones. We see you. We love you. We as fans created this community, and the books still belong to you. No one gets to take that away. There's a lot more that can be said on this whole issue, so I'm hoping to go more in-depth on the subject in a future episode. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Katie Lauren Ford, Katie Lauren is a mental health researcher who will be teaching a course on trauma and PTSD in the Potter series this spring at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In this episode, we look at how our early childhood experiences influence the way we see the world, how traumatic events impact our worldviews, and we do all this with some excellent examples from the Potter series. I hope y'all are ready because there is a lot of gold in this episode. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Beyond the Veil, everyone. Uh, I am so excited. Today we have Katie Lauren Ford on the podcast with us. Katie Lauren, thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so to get started, will you just tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Anything you'd like to share? Um, yeah, so like you said, I'm Katie Lauren. Um, I am from Arkansas originally. So maybe that explains the double first name thing a little bit. Um, but I am currently a Southern transplant living in the Northern U.S. I'm in Pittsburgh now. Um, and I think about fried catfish and biscuits and gravy a lot more than I ever imagined that I would. <laughs> um, now that I'm not in the South. Um, I am a mental health researcher and a psychology instructor at Chatham University. Um, so actually, I'm at, at two different places. I do the research at the University of Pittsburgh and the instruction at Chatham University. Um, got my PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Alabama. So just kind of an eclectic person, I guess. Um, but of course, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Oh, yes. Well, and if there's uh, what sort of Harry Potter information would you like to share about yourself? Oh, so much. <laughs> um, Please. Uh, so I am a very proud, quirky and hopefully witty Ravenclaw. Um, my Ilver Morning House is Thunderbird. Um, and I have a Patronus on Pottermore, which is a little owl specifically little oh. um and my wand core is phoenix feather so there are a lot of bird themes happening in all my harry potter uh characteristics so i don't know maybe that's trying to tell me something about myself but i'm i'm happy with all of those things love that i love the bird theme that's interesting to see it go over so many different parts of your uh, potter personality profile or however you'd call it yeah, and I'm not a super huge fan of heights, so I don't know what it's about, but. <laughs> it 
strange. That's the magic of it, I guess. It is. So when and how did you first get in touch with the Potter series? When did it come into your life? Okay. Um, So I have my childhood best friend, Lacey, to thank for my love Mm -hmm. of Harry Potter. Um, (laughs) I think the year was like... 99 when she gave me the first book um she was actually a couple of years younger than me but I read the first two chapters and thought it was a little uh, too out there I in I in Ravenclaw fashion I was working my way through my parents um a set of world book encyclopedias at the time and I was only up to the peas so I didn't have time for Harry Potter (laughs) and the ridiculous made-up words. Um, I thought Hogwarts was silly, but um, a couple of years later, Lacey had her birthday party at the movie theater, and she invited all her friends to go see the first Harry Potter movie. Um, She was my best friend, so of course I went, and I fell in love. Um, I think that that happened on a Friday, and on Saturday, my parents, I got my parents to drive me to the bookstore, buy the first four books, I think, that were out at that time. Um, And on Monday, I stayed home, uh, quote unquote, sick from school and read them all um, (laughs) over like two days. And yeah, it's the rest is history. I love that. That's, that's commitment, staying home from school to finish them. I love that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, um, So like you mentioned earlier, um, you are a mental health researcher, and I am curious to know what initially inspired you to get into the mental health research, psychology studies, and eventually, as you are uh, now, become like a, a psychology instructor. Yeah, so um, honestly, I changed my major about four times within the first month of my freshman year of college. And uh, (laughs) I was just very indecisive, but I was taking a psychology gen ed course and I fell in love very quickly, just like I did with Harry Potter. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it at that time. Um, But over the course of college, I learned that in psychology, you should probably go get a graduate degree. Not always, but in general, it's a good idea. Um, mm-hmm. So I did that. And when I started training to do therapy in my clinical psychology program, I realized that the reason I'd really loved psychology was because I loved learning about psychology um, and not so much doing therapy. So I uh, gradually figured out that the best way to become like a, a perennial student would be to continue learning through research and to get to share what I learned through teaching. So I just kind of uh, found my little niche in psychology and I love it. I just get to keep learning all the time. That's wonderful. That's it's so interesting how when you know, you know, like you're interested in something, right? Like it, if it was similar to like reading Harry Potter, you know, falling in love and then falling in love with psychology. But uh, the different paths that we can take with those things don't always reveal themselves. So I'm I'm glad that you had this way opened up to you. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about um, all of that we have on our, you know, on our outline here. And 
uh, in your submission, you mentioned that you are going to be teaching a course on trauma and PTSD in the Potter series in the spring, which I love hearing about any Harry Potter college course. But this, you know, obviously this is, you know, my meat and potatoes as far as that goes. And I'd love to know what made you decide that you wanted to teach this course. Yeah, so... Um my interest is kind of twofold, just like it's trauma and PTSD and the Harry Potter series. Um, so I managed to finish my clinical training and my graduate program without a whole lot of education about or experience with trauma treatment. Um, and then in the clinical psychology uh, graduate program, you do a year-long clinical internship. Um, I did mine in a VA hospital. Um, so working in a VA, you kind of have to have some trauma uh, training. So I got a crash course that year, had to learn it all really quickly. Um, and in the course of that, I learned how extremely pervasive trauma is um, and how many problems that I had seen in clients I'd worked with like earlier in my graduate training that could probably have been explained by their trauma, but I didn't understand it that way at the time. Um, and I saw it, I started to see it all around me and in my personal life and in the people that I love. Um, and so at this point I just, uh, realized how important it was. And when I finished that year, I came back, um, to start teaching at the university where I had done my clinical training. And I realized how important it was that, uh, like other people need this information, um, that I had to learn so quickly. So I started teaching a trauma and PTSD course there at the University of Alabama that I taught mm. that for about three semesters. And then I moved up here to Pittsburgh. Um, and as I think that you've discussed in a couple of your um, episodes, like in those transitional periods, a lot of times we go back to what we know and what makes us feel at home and comfortable. And so I was doing my reread of the Harry Potter series. And now with kind of this new information that I had, I started to see the trauma and PTSD in Harry and in other characters in the series. Um, so being the perennial student, I just started um, had a couple of bouts of insomnia and I started drafting syllabi in the middle of the night. Um, just kind of developing <laughs> this Harry Potter course. And I was so lucky in that uh, when I got an adjunct uh, position at uh, Chatham, I was able to kind of just reach out to the department heads and say like, hey, if you guys ever need someone to teach a, an extra, an elective course, I have this idea. And they jumped on it. And so, yeah, I'm going to teach it in the spring. And I am so excited. Wow. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy that that's happened. And what a you know, inspiration in the middle of the night. That's a, what a wonderful feeling. I mean, the insomnia and the like, you know, extreme energy isn't always, but being so passionate <laughs> about something. Uh, I'm so excited for you. Yeah, and having someone kind of validate that by saying, sure, you can teach that. Yes. That was very cool. Absolutely. That's, uh, I, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but it's, the world of Harry Potter is such a wonderful metaphor for so many things. And I think uh, using it in a classroom environment makes the material so much more accessible for uh, students. I mean, you know, whether they are really, really into psychology or if they're just taking it, 
you know, an extra psychoactive or something like that, whatever it is. Uh, I, I just, I can't, ex- I can't go. Uh, it's hard for me to explain how much I am. Yes. Yes. This is amazing. Feel that way. So, um, so yes, well, I've been crafting a little too much. I've bought a wax seal. There will be Hogwarts acceptance letters involved in this course. Couldn't be any other way. That's wonderful. (laughs) Um, So we have gone into depth about trauma on this podcast before, um, and we're going to talk more about it, but kind of go into some of the other, um, into some, uh, what would, what would a good word be? Just like other aspects of it, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Other aspects of trauma, um, aside from the kind of physiological experiences of it. Um, And that being said, though, uh, for anybody who might not know, can you kind of take us in, give us a basic refresher on what is trauma? What is PTSD? What's the, you know, the elevator speech on those topics? Yeah. Um, So... Trauma is kind of the broader term, which can be defined in a a lot of ways, but it essentially refers to any experience or like set of experiences that's outside the normal bounds of what we as humans can tolerate. Um, And it provokes that sort of um, like survival instinct that lives somewhere outside of our conscious thinking brains. It's that fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, And PTSD, on the other hand, is that kind of diagnostic label that researchers and mental health care providers can use to communicate with their clients and with each other about that set of reactions to trauma um, that seem to occur pretty predictably. So it's kind of in in some ways helpful to label it. Now, the extent to which it's helpful is a whole other discussion. But um, basically, there are ways that we as humans tend to respond to trauma that can make our lives after that trauma really, really difficult. Um, And those ways are physical or physiological, but then there's also emotional and social and cognitive um, ways of responding to trauma. Um, And like you said, you've you've covered that in your podcast before. Your previous guests have done such an amazing job of describing and explaining the bases for those responses to trauma, um, especially with like the bottom up response. So the um, response that comes from our physiological core um, mm-hmm. and that body brain connection. Um, but I'm here to kind of give my two cents on the other side of that. Um, experience of trauma that's all encompassing so specifically the like more cognitive and social aspects of it um and absolutely i think one of the best ways to discuss those two particular aspects of the trauma response is through the context of attachment theory wonderful um so let's i'm ready to dive in let's look at how trauma can affect us in these different ways and kind of starting off by looking at how these um, attachment styles, attachment theory, what you said, can you walk us through like the basics? What are attachment styles? What is attachment theory? First, if if this is okay, um, as a researcher, I would like to cite my sources because I know how important that is. Um, Love that. Okay, awesome. So 
Uh, first, as a researcher, I fully appreciate the importance of citing one's sources, so I'd like to mention that while this topic is something that I've thought about and, and kind of formulated my own ideas about, a lot of the information that I am about to discuss has come from the works of other people. Um, so I, I want to give shout outs to a couple of people, um, Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk, who's one of like the foremost researchers on trauma and treatment um, for trauma. He wrote the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. It is an excellent resource for people who are experiencing trauma or who just want to learn about trauma. Um, and another great resource is called The Psychology of Harry Potter. Um, it's an awesome <gasps> yes. book. Uh, and especially the book, I mean, especially the chapter in that book called Attachment Styles at Hogwarts. So that particular chapter is by Dr. Wind Goodfriend. Um, and honestly, of course, I'd recommend this book to pretty much anyone who's enjoying this Beyond the Veil podcast. Um, it covers a lot of topics within the realm of psychology and, and mental health. And it puts that, you know, magical wizarding world spin on them. So awesome resources. Love that. Um, okay, so attachment theory. Um, so you can't talk about attachment theory without talking about Bowlby. Um, he's kind of the, the father of attachment, and he, um, excuse the reading of the definition here, but he defines attachment as an enduring emotional tie to a person characterized by a tendency to seek and maintain closeness, especially during times of stress. Um, so his attachment theory states that the way we bond, um, especially with our parent or primary caregiver in the earliest um, stages of our life, is really important in establishing our understanding of the world, the ways in which like, we as human beings kind of relate to one another and how we understand ourselves. Um, and these attachment patterns uh, essentially help us develop a basic level of trust in other people, which is kind of necessary for our survival um, as human beings. And attachment theory kind of states that there are different types of attachment styles. So kind of like how there's a predictable set of ways that we respond to trauma. Um, there are only so many different ways uh, that have been identified that a, a person can or a baby can bond with that primary caregiver. Um, of course, there's a lot of variability and no two people, even if they fit in the same category, look exactly alike, but broadly we can kind of categorize attachment styles. Okay, so there are four basic attachment styles and those are secure, avoidant, anxious, and disorganized. Um, disorganized is kind of the uh, fourth that was added later. Um, the three main styles are those secure, avoidant, and anxious. Um, so secure attachment is like the ideal style. Um, these kids' parents aren't necessarily perfect, but they're essentially like predictively responsive to the baby's needs. Um, babies can't regulate their own emotions. When they need something and they feel bad, they don't know how to deal with that. Um, but a competent or confident and healthy caregiver does this for the baby by soothing the baby when she's upset or feeding her when she's hungry or cleaning her when she's dirty, anything. They, they meet those needs and eventually baby learns to use these events as examples. So she grows into an older child 
an older child who can eventually, you know, feed herself and clean herself up and eventually even soothe herself when she's upset. Um, so she learns through this process, like that the people we lean on, the people we love will essentially be there for us when we need them and do what we need them to do for us. So she, you know, continues to grow into a teen and then an adult who can regulate her own emotions and form healthy relationships with friends and romantic partners. And um, she does all of this, like basically knowing that these people will be there for her when she needs them. Um, so she can, uh, so we use the term in attachment theory a lot of a secure base. So babies and really young children, especially, um, need their primary caregiver so much that they actually get visibly upset. They do that separation anxiety thing when mom or dad or whoever the primary caregiver is, is out of the room. Um, we get a little bit better as we grow older about not being upset just because someone we lean on has left the room. But um, when we're away from them for extended periods of time or when they are maybe emotionally unavailable, um, if we're securely attached, we know that we can lean on them most of the time. And when they're not there or they're not emotionally available for us, we can soothe ourselves. Um, so then there's three types of attachment styles that are less than ideal. Um, so the first one that I'll talk about there is avoidant attachment patterns. Um, so usually the avoidantly attached child grew up with a parent who just essentially didn't respond to meet the child's needs, um, no matter what the child tried. So it's kind of unpredictable, like, um, will I get what I need if I cry at mom or if I smile at mom? Um, you never know. And most of the time the answer is no. Um, so that baby has learned to self soothe like way earlier than most other babies. They just push those feelings deep down and learn that if I don't need anything, then I don't have to worry about self-soothing. Um, they just essentially stop needing things. Um, these kids grow up to be mm -hmm. adults who either don't have as many important relationships or don't have as important of relationships in their lives, or they're just really dismissive of those. Um, they can be kind of like, reluctant to take risks because they don't really have that secure base. Um, that secure base helps us go out into the world and explore and knowing that we have that to come back to. So people who don't have that may be um, more hesitant to go out and take risks and try new things. Um, Adults with avoidant attachment styles are um, often lower in levels of empathy and uh, they may avoid intimacy a little more than other people because honestly, they're skeptical of the benefits of a close relationship because honestly, they didn't benefit that much from their first and like that most important bond with the primary caregiver. It never really did much for them. So why would any new relationship do that? Right. Um, so this person can just kind of come across as really out of touch with their feelings or just kind of feelingless. Um, so uh, Bessel van der Kolk, as I mentioned, uh, the best trauma theorist, in my opinion, um, he has a, a term for these insecure attachment styles. He has little um, kind of mnemonics to remember them. So he calls avoidantly attached people. He, he refers to them as dealing 
but not feeling. Um, and that will make more sense when I give the other terms in a sec. Um, so that anxious attachment style is the second type of insecure attachment style. Um, and this child had a parent who maybe responded unpredictably. So maybe that parent, or I keep saying parent, but it can really be any, any person in the life of the baby who functioned as the mm -hmm. primary caregiver. Um, maybe that caregiver was a little bit like distracted by their own issues, or sometimes their expectations are kind of like out of sync with the baby's natural rhythms and the things that a baby naturally needs. Um, that parent has their own needs or has kind of unrealistic expectations of the baby that are getting in the way mm -hmm. of that bond. Um, but in general, that baby has learned that unless they basically make a giant ruckus, they have to make a big fuss to get noticed or else their caregiver is not going to notice or respond. Um, so this, this child has become like so preoccupied with getting their caregiver to acknowledge that they need help that they don't ever get the chance to internalize that lesson and learn to regulate their own emotions mm. themselves and meet their own needs. Um, they've spent all their time trying to get the attention of the caregiver. Um, so these people can kind of grow into adults who come across as like a, a more derogatory term would be clingy. Um, but essentially they're, they're anxious, they're afraid, and they're really concerned about getting into or um, getting into relationships or maintaining support in the relationships that they have because they have that kind of constant fear that um, if they're not working to get or keep the attention of the people around them, they may not get their needs mm. met. Um, so Vanderkolk calls this attachment style feeling but not dealing. They're having all the feelings all the time, but aren't sure how to deal with them. Um, while the avoidantly attached person is just dealing and appears to have it all together, but um, they're not really in touch with that emotional side of themselves. Yeah. Um, okay, so the final attachment style is called disorganized attachment. That's that one that was more recently recognized or relatively more recently recognized. Um, so this is a style that's most likely to result in, um, like essentially mental illness, um, kind of maladjustment, disordered behavior. Um, so what we see with the other styles of attachment is that, um, the patterns of behavior, the self-concept, the interactions with others, they might sometimes develop to be somewhat less than adaptive, um, but they basically come as the result of predictable parenting patterns. Um, even if that predictable pattern is um, like things turn out better when I rely on myself and never acknowledge my emotions, which is like the avoidant mm -hmm. person, um, or if that predictable pattern is I have to fight tooth and nail to get the attention I need and the support that I need so that I can get help to deal with my feelings. So that would be the anxiously attached person. At least there is some level of predictability there. Mm -hmm. um, whereas disorganized attachment results from just an utter lack of predictability. Um, so the consequent mindset is kind of like, I have no idea how to get what I need. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I don't even know what I need. Um, 
And in a lot of cases, certainly not all of them, but in a lot of cases, this style of attachment is actually the result of abuse or neglect. Um, so this can look like a childhood uh, when you involving trying a lot of different things like keeping to yourself and trying to suppress your emotions or meet your own needs um, or trying really hard to act out and get the attention that you need um, but it's ultimately just kind of a crapshoot whether any of these methods would actually help you get your needs met or whether they'd result in being on the receiving end of some kind of like parental abuse mm -hmm. um so children with a disorganized attachment style can grow up to be adults who are kind of like directionless or just dysfunctional um, in their understanding of themselves and the way that the world works and how people should treat one another, uh, which, you know, obviously can result in a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, so mental illness can affect any of us from any attachment style at any time, regardless of the way we were brought up um but that sort of like disorganized foundation for life just adds a giant risk factor um, which makes that outcome like that much more likely for those individuals i feel like i've been i've had the urge to sit here taking notes on all of this you've presented it in such a way that's very easy to understand and i'm curious to know um i can think of some in my head but i want to know what you think when you're looking at characters in the Harry Potter series, can you think of characters who represent these different kinds of uh, attachment styles? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so a certain amount of guesswork has to be done to answer that question. And um, so once again, I'm not the first person to do this guesswork. Um, so Dr. Goodfriend's chapter in the Psychology of Harry Potter book goes into some really good detail on this topic. Um, but uh, anyway, we can, honestly, we can only look at the behaviors of the characters that we see uh, throughout the seven books, because in a lot of cases, we don't know what their early childhoods looked like. Um, that's especially true for Hermione. Um, but what we do get a lot of info about, especially for the Golden Trio, um, are their friendships, their responses to stressful situations, and then Later on in the series, we get a little bit of info about their romantic endeavors, um, which happens to be one of the biggest ways in which our attachment styles come to the forefront as we age. Um, so with some guesswork, I do think we have some really solid examples of those first three attachment styles, um, the secure, avoidant, mm. and anxious. So first we have Hermione, who is, I think, the closest closest example we have um, to a secure attachment. Um, so Hermione does exhibit some anxiety at some points throughout the series, um, but she also might serve as a good example of that point I made earlier, that even with that really uh, like that solid foundation and ideal home life, um, you can end up experiencing hardships or depression or anxiety or any mental mm -hmm. health concerns. Um, but securely attached people who encounter those kind of hardships are often the ones you see who just, it seems like effortless. Like, you know, they struggle, you know, they're dealing with stuff, but they, they seem to just like pull on their own inner, inner strength and they just cope with whatever life throws at them. Like 
they have their bad days, but honestly, they're making it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so Hermione does experience a lot of anxiety, especially surrounding her academic performance and especially around exam time. But <laughs> yes. ultimately, I mean, she's making 112% on her exams. She's like performing at her peak um, and she's coping really well in other areas of life, um, especially in the social arena. And especially when you make that comparison between Hermione and the boys. <laughs> yes. Um, and that social arena is the area of our life that can be especially sensitive to our early life experiences with our caregivers, which is what makes me pretty confident that she was securely attached. Mm -hmm. So um, we see examples of this when, <laughs> when Hermione essentially has to like interpret other people's emotional experiences for Harry and Ron <laughs> because they have the emotional range of a teaspoon. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, she also like exhibits a lot of maturity in her own social life and that she seems like ready to handle a relationship with Victor Crumb in book four, which was like a full year before Harry kind of finds himself thrown into the dating scene and two years before Ron starts to explore his options. Um, but, oh, okay, so speaking of the Goblet of Fire, we get another really good example of Hermione's security uh, in that book when she is exposed to the same stressors as Harry when Rita Skeeter starts spreading those rumors around and the other students are teasing them and ostracizing them. Hermione is just like the epitome of grace under fire mm -hmm. um, so she's walking through the halls with harry telling him like just ignore them and she's going on with her own life she's helping harry work on the the triwizard tasks she's dating crumb and all the while like rather than just crumpling under the pressure of those rumors which as we all know can be absolutely devastating at mm -hmm. age 14 She's like exercising her own agency. She's formulating this plan to deal with the problem by like identifying the source and, and you know, giving it to Rita Skeeter. So she's just, she's dealing with stuff. You know, her life's not perfect, but she's coping. She has those skills. She knows how to rely on herself and she's managing and she honestly makes it look easy. So I think she's a really good example of secure attachment. So then next we have Harry. Harry is like the poster child for the avoidant attachment <laughs> style. I thought that you um, might say him for this one. Yeah. Uh, he, we know the most about his upbringing out of the three. Um, and we know that he was like frequently and explicitly told to keep quiet and do not ask questions. Um, so it makes sense that he was, uh, like, it kind of didn't matter what he tried. He was not going to get any kind of response when it came to getting his needs met as a, a toddler and a young child. Um, so it makes sense that he grows up to be kind of out of touch with his own and with others' emotions, because he'd been taught for so long that he was not going to get any help from the adults in his life. Um, so we even see him, especially during books four and five, like avoiding going to the adult figures in his life to express concerns about like serious stuff. Like his life was being threatened. He was having some really strange experiences in book five and 
his friends are urging him like go like tell Sirius tell Dumbledore tell someone and he's like no nah, I'm good um he's only gonna tell an adult that something is wrong and that he needs some help dealing with what life is throwing at him only when he has to or when it seems like someone else's life is in danger like Arthur Weasley mm-hmm. um he has no regard for his own emotional experiences um but this is understandable because when has he had any success with going to adults in his life before right um so romantically we see that harry was like a a year slower than hermione to enter the dating scene and he only did it then because cho approached him um even though like with harry as kind of our narrator we know he was attracted to her uh, but he wasn't going to make the move because he doesn't have a basis for doing that he doesn't have any reason to kind of act on that and reach out for another person as a source of emotional support in a romantic relationship um so that's actually a really typical approach for an avoidantly attached person it just it happens because they're just so used to suppressing their feelings dealing with things on their own that they're less likely to be the one to take the initiative mm-hmm. um they've never had that kind of secure base before so why would they seek it out in the form of a romantic partner which is essentially how we um how we establish our secure bases as adults Mm, okay um so his like (laughs) his lack of attunement with his own emotions obviously plays a big role in that disaster of a relationship with cho um so several missteps along the way because he wasn't reading things right and then eventually it just led to the complete dissolution of the relationship um and even after it's ended we don't get in in our narration like our access to harry's feelings we're not getting a lot of regret or sadness over um the loss like no real emotional reaction to the breakup it's just he's a little uncomfortable when he has to deal with her emotional fallout Um, He's maybe a little concerned about the practical implications of that, but no real emotional investment from him there. So that's, that's pretty textbook avoidant. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So the final example is Ron, who might be interpreted as anxiously attached. Um, So, I mean, we know a lot about Ron's home life now, but not as much about what things were like for him when he was younger. Um, But we do know that there were seven kids in that house and maybe it was a little bit difficult to get attention um especially with all the standout personalities and all the pranks from fred and george ron may have been kind of low on the list for attention um Mm -hmm. from his mom and dad it may also have happened that uh molly and or arthur weasley were insecurely attached in one way or another um, because research shows us that attachment styles tend to get passed down from parent to child or from caregiver to child. Uh, But regardless of how it happened, we see um, some evidence of this anxious attachment um, in Ron's like kind of desperate desires to stand out and apart from his siblings and then later Mm -hmm. from Harry. Um, We see a lot of jealousy in his romantic endeavors as well. Um, So the like back and forth between Hermione and Ron started way way earlier than they actually get together um which is maybe why so many of us were rooting for them by the time they actually did get together (laughs) um but ron just really 
doesn't handle it well when Hermione goes to the Yule Ball with Crumb, and then she continues to show some interest in him even after that. Um, so one pattern that we tend to see with anxiously attached people is that they are so insecure about their own ability to regulate their own emotions and to have that secure base to return to that they will kind of always need to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and even when they're in a relationship, they always need more, like they need more support. They need constant reassurances that um, the, the person they're with actually likes them and actually wants to be with them, uh, which can get really frustrating for the partner who feels like they're doing everything they can to demonstrate that. Um, so even though we see Hermione like showing some openness to a relationship with Ron in the earlier books, like when she tells Ron, you know, I, I would have gone to the Yule Ball with you if you just asked me like a human. Um, mm -hmm. it's like Ron needed more convincing that she liked him. Like that wasn't quite enough. Um, mm -hmm. and that continues all the way through to book six when he is so desperate to have that connection and have some other source of support in his life that he ends up going for Lavender Brown, who almost definitely isn't a good match for Ron. Yeah. <laughs> but she is intensely interested and that gives Ron some of that confidence that he's been so desperately seeking and that he really hasn't experienced a lot in his life. And then later on in that relationship, we see he's not even really enjoying being with Lavender anymore, but he's mm -hmm. a really tough time breaking it off. Um, he just kind of ends up waiting and forcing her to do it for him. Um, and we see that a lot in anxiously attached adult relationships as well, because they're like, it's almost like they are more afraid of being alone than of being in a dysfunctional relationship. And they can get themselves oh, into some wow. bad situations that way. I had never thought about that as being as why Ron stayed with Lavender that long, but that makes total sense. I mean, obviously there are other ways of looking at it, but from an attachment perspective. Right. Yeah. I'm curious and this may be one of those questions where it's like the answer is yes, but yes, because everything is a theory. Um, <laughs> but is it is it possible for someone to have uh, different attachment styles in different parts of their life as in avoidant in some parts and anxious in other parts? Um, so, yes, I think that it Okay, so we formulate our mm, our understanding of how to get what we need um, from uh, like in the beautiful clean theory. We're we're formulating that in our relationship with our primary caregiver, and there are no other you know extraneous or confounding variables. It's just super clean. That's how it happens. But the reality is none of us are raised by that primary caregiver in a vacuum. Um, just like you might have a re different relationship with your mom and your dad as a baby or a toddler, um, young child, you can have different relationships with different types of people. Um, you can see people who have had less than ideal attachments or relationships with their parents grow up, find someone who's really good for them and use that romantic partner as a secure base, but still have a really strange relationship with their parents. 
So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. There can be different aspects of those different attachment styles in different areas of a person's life. Going through them all, uh, it's so, I mean, it's, it's really cool how you can see like pretty clearly these attachment styles in each uh, of the golden trio. I'm curious if you see anyone as having a disorganized attachment style in the series. Yeah, so I skipped over that one intentionally because that one's harder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's kind of a big accusation to make. Um, we we mm -hmm. kind of see the, the other attachment styles, even avoidant and anxious, as um, like they may be less than ideal, but they're functional, at least to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas disorganized, and actually I forgot to mention this earlier, that um, Vanderkolt's little uh, mnemonic that he ascribes to disorganized attachment, um, as opposed to dealing without feeling or feeling without dealing, disorganized is fright without solution. Mm. Um, it's just complete lack of direction, lack of self-efficacy, like I have no idea how to get what I need and I'm terrified about it. Yeah, so that one's a little bit more uh, difficult to pinpoint. You just essentially yeah. you want to look for the most dysfunctional person in the series, and I don't really want to ascribe that to anyone. Um, but I I wonder if that might be part of what was going on with Voldemort. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, we we know very little about his interpersonal relationships. Um, so it's it's hard to give him that label, but that would be the closest person that I could pinpoint, I think, in the series. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And like you said, that's a it's such a, a different flavor than some of the other ones that it's it's really hard to look in. And uh, when you when the only person whose early childhood we really have access to is Harry, it's kind of hard to pinpoint anybody who might have gone through uh, something that different than those situations yeah definitely so we have these different attachment styles these different ways that we interact with the world see the world interact with other people um but long after we have our early life experiences that can influence these attachment styles we can still experience trauma um and our experience of trauma is probably going to be impacted by the way that we you know see the world and so i'm i'm curious um if we experience a trauma um how will that and our attachment style influence the relationships that we may have during the time of the traumatic event yeah um so majorly is the short answer um they can impact <laughs> those relationships that are that we have at the time when we experience a trauma and they can kind of experience our our worldview and our relationships from there on out um but to explain that i have to give a little more info about how trauma impacts us and i don't want to go over what has already been covered in the show um you had a guest sarah who did an excellent job of describing like why trauma is traumatic like mm -hmm. essentially something throws us into that fight or flight or freeze response and then something goes wrong inside our bodies and our brains it gets us permanently kind of stuck in that response but 
one of the things that's involved in that process is like our interpretation of the event. Um, so essentially like we as humans developed this fight or flight or freeze response a long, long, long time ago because it helped us survive. Um, because we would get that same feeling when we encountered a situation that was like the original trauma. And at that time, if that was like a predator or a dangerous berry or cliff or something that we needed to avoid, that reoccurring response was super helpful to us because um, it helped us survive. Um, but many of the things that happen to like traumatize us nowadays aren't really things that we end up facing again on a regular basis. So when those trauma responses like continue or they reoccur and that fight or flight or freeze response isn't actually beneficial to us, um, it can really like get in the way of our daily lives and our happiness. Um, and one of the things that's changed over time since we developed this response system is that our frontal lobes have become a lot more developed and that's the part of our brain where we do a lot of our interpretation and evaluation of our own like thoughts and feelings and behaviors so we're doing a lot of cognitive processing about the actual trauma that's happened to us and then we're doing a lot of processing about our continued reactions to that trauma and we end up feeling worse and worse and eventually we end up complicating and prolonging that trauma response and it stays around with us. Um, so to get back around and more directly answer your question, like the, the relationship between attachment and trauma is, is one of those things that can um, make an event traumatic, like essentially an event can somehow violate one of those foundational beliefs that we formed way back in early childhood about um, like who we are, like how we see ourselves, how we see other people, how we see the world. When an event violates one of those like deeply ingrained beliefs, um, it is traumatic. <laughs> that becomes one of those things that's so unbearable for us that we jump into that fight or flight or freeze mode. Um, so that doesn't actually have to happen consciously. So if you're in a sudden accident or you're assaulted, you're not sitting there thinking, hmm, this isn't exactly what I expected would be happening right now based on how I see the world. Um, but those beliefs are just so deeply ingrained in us that an event which may not even actually threaten our lives can end up triggering that survival adrenaline response before we even realize what's happening. So you can see that wow. especially in examples like um, losing a loved one or like uh, an especially sudden or hurtful um, kind of interpersonal betrayal. Uh, so in those cases, there wasn't really a palpable threat of death or even really grievous physical injury to the person who ends up traumatized by the loss or by the betrayal. Um, but yet they can have that trauma response, that fight or flight or freeze, like I need to do everything I can to survive kind of response. But one reason that might be happening is because we've internalized the belief that like other people should not be treating me or anyone like this, or maybe in the case of a loss, like 
this person was not supposed to leave me. I need this person to help me regulate my emotions and navigate the world. Um, and then what that person, the traumatized person is left with is a body and brain that's stuck in that trauma mode. So attachment styles and their associated beliefs are really deeply ingrained, but they're not unchangeable. Um, so a second way that we can see trauma and attachment interact is in the aftermath of a trauma. Um, so when a person's kind of core beliefs have been violated by a traumatic event, there's a lot of distress that can come from trying to reconcile what happened with what should have happened or how we expected things to be. Um, and when our thoughts and our physiological trauma responses interact, they can kind of go into this spiral where they make each other worse and it just snowballs from there. And another thing that trauma can do is to cause this sort of rift in our self-regulatory systems. Um, so remember, attachment is the, the main way that we learn to regulate our own emotions. And we do that by reaching out to our trusted others, our secure bases. And now in this trauma response uh, situation, we're having more trouble than ever regulating our own emotions because essentially every major physiological and emotional mm -hmm. system in our bodies is going haywire. Um, but at the same time, our major beliefs have just been turned completely upside down. So we desperately need other people to help us get through what we are enduring, but we're also not so sure that we can trust anyone anymore. Um, so these feelings and like not to mention these symptoms of PTSD, like um, those outbursts of anger, flashbacks or dissociation, like just to name a few. This can all like work together to drive others away from us or cause cause us to isolate ourselves, like just when we need other people the very most. Uh, and I think that this has been covered so thoroughly in other episodes, but I'll just say that all caps lock Harry, or as I used to call him, teen angst Harry, he's like the best example of that situation. Mm-hmm. So will a person's particular attachment style, could that, for example, um, influence which post-traumatic symptoms mm. a person would be more likely to experience? So I think that the different ways that a person might respond to trauma based on their attachment style are a lot like what we see in the golden trio and their responses to stress throughout the series um so we see hermione who is securely attached um like that that strong secure foundation and its value just cannot be understated i mean it can't be overstated like the importance of it um mm -hmm. because we see her dealing with a lot of these like what could absolutely be considered traumas. We think of Harry as the trauma survivor in the series, but so many other people in the series deal with that too. Um, but we see her like frequently reaching out to others for support. Um, we see her turning to books, um, turning to like looking for answers actively um, and trying to reconcile what she's experienced with what she knows to be true and seeing if there's another way to understand that. And just overall, just coping really healthily. Um, 
whereas an avoidant person like a Harry who experiences trauma may tend a lot more toward that isolation. Like I was talking about, like you, you need that secure base. You need that emotional support now more than ever, now that you've experienced a trauma. Um, but that if, if you're avoidantly attached, you're probably going to be even less likely um, to seek that out. Um, we tend to kind of turn toward our worst habits when we're especially distressed, um, I think. Um, and then someone like Ron, who's anxiously attached, mm -hmm. um, may kind of feel, find himself doing that feeling without dealing. He may kind of be extremely overwhelmed by the emotional distress that he's feeling as a result of the trauma and, and find himself like almost bugging others. Like, I, I hate to say it that way. That sounds terrible, but um, maybe reaching out to people too much and, and wearing out the people around him with his needs because he's unable mm -hmm. to internalize their support and kind of sustain it within, within himself. Um, and I think those are all kinds of responses to trauma that mm -hmm. I've seen in my clinical experiences. It's pretty limited. It was only in my training program. Um, and, you know, even, even in a short time at the VA, working with a few different people with trauma, I think I can kind of honestly say I've, I've seen all of those. I've had people who came to me or came to the VA for therapy and ended up getting assigned to me. Um, because they had great people in their life and they were kind of wearing those people out with their needs. Like they saw their loved ones um, kind of distress or burden as the reason for coming into therapy. Cause like uh, I'm leaning on them hard and I'm still needing things. So here I am for therapy. Um, can you help me? Uh, but then you also see the people who mm -hmm. are coming in because they are experiencing some other difficulty, like those things that often go along with PTSD, like um, substance use or um, like self-harm or something like that. Um, and they don't really think they need the help for their trauma. They're more avoidantly attached. They don't think they need therapy. Um, maybe their doctor told them or uh, someone in their life told them they should come into therapy. Um, but they don't really think they need it. And they're, they're being pretty avoidant about it. But if they can learn to to use the help that's available around them, they can really experience some progress. I obviously don't have the like educational background or any clinical experience, but I know a lot of people with mental health issues and I talk to a lot of people with mental health issues and it really rings true that there are these, um, I don't know, these kind of echoes of our experience that we have where the very early experiences that we have, there's always going to be a new echo of that. And um, whether it is through trauma or PTSD or something else, there's always going to be a kind of reckoning with whatever it is that, you know, maybe that initial, wherever there were um, gaps where whoever was, you know, a caregiver and wherever there was a place where maybe there was not um, a total success that left something uh, to be desired. Those things will always come back in some shape or form. And knowing what 
you know, knowing what that is and how the, your particular attachment style works can be really useful for figuring out why things seem to be going a certain way in your life right now, if that makes sense. I love the term, like, the echoes of our experiences. Like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's really strong imagery. And that actually, yeah, that kind of goes into the next point. Like, the fact that our later experiences, such as a trauma, can interact with our earlier experiences, our deeply ingrained beliefs that we developed in childhood, and the fact that those things can interplay later in life can actually be used to our benefit. Like, the the first and most important thing to do is to mm -hmm. have some awareness of how that's playing out in your life, just like you just mentioned. Um, but we can like capitalize on that interaction and, and use it to help us um, because we can like, reach out to others, whether that's our, our pre-existing secure base in the form of a parent or a close friend or a romantic partner. Um, and that can help us start to heal what's going on in our bodies and our brains with that trauma response or with any mental health concern that we're having. Um, but seeing I'm probably biased to recommend this but seeing a therapist is one of the very best ways to do that um, therapists are often like trained to kind of function as a temporary secure base for us to return to um, while we're doing that super tough work of healing and while we can turn to other loved ones in our lives and and achieve that even if we didn't have that secure base in early childhood, we can find that later on in life. Um, while that can be really helpful and amazing if you can find that in your personal life, um, therapists are trained to do that specifically, and they have some really great techniques that they can teach you to help in that healing process while they're functioning as that secure base to support you through the healing process. So they have kind of like a, a double um benefit there yes go to therapy everyone <laughs> it's definitely so good for you so in looking at like moving forward from a traumatic event we've kind of looked at how like our current relationships uh that we have at the time of the event will be affected so moving forward from that um how do these how do these experiences and traumas affect how we build new relationships that start after this major event that may take place? Yeah, so that is entirely dependent on how the trauma is dealt with. Mm -hmm. um, so a person who is securely attached and then encounters a trauma may now suddenly interact with people around them and form new relationships in the way that like we might see a person who's always been avoidantly attached. Um, so like if a securely attached person, if one of those internalized original core beliefs is people are basically good and treat one another with kindness, and then they experience a trauma that teaches them the exact opposite of that, um, we may now see them kind of having that avoidant attitude of, um, I really can't depend on anybody to meet my needs. Mm -hmm. um, but in the same way, if somebody experiences a trauma that kind of shakes them to their core and they do that 
healing work like we were talking about, like they have a secure base or they, they find a new secure base to turn to, um, to, to do that healing work, then they may even develop stronger relationships in the future. Um, like the therapy, the, the work that can be done in therapy to heal a trauma is something that can be used to heal a, like an, or kind of repair an insecure attachment style. Um, even if you never encountered a trauma, honestly, therapy can help with this. Like it is possible to change the way that you interact with, with other human beings. Um, so like we see this happen naturally sometimes, like, uh, even outside the context of therapy. So like a person who did have a, a kind of an insecure attachment to one of their parent figures, um, will kind of like find themselves later in life in a healthy relationship um, with the right person. And over time, you notice that like you're making each other better people and you're learning to use, well, you probably don't notice this unless you're an attachment theorist and you're looking for it, but you, you are <laughs> learning to use one another like as secure bases and you're each becoming better at regulating your own emotions in the process. And like you become stronger, better people individually because you're great together. Um, like, it's just, yeah, they can, you can find that an anxious person becomes better at regulating their own emotions or an avoidant person gets more in tune with their emotions and like increases their levels of empathy and um, intimacy, like their desire for intimacy, like people become better at tolerating distress and yeah, just all kinds of cool changes can happen naturally or through therapy. Um, and honestly, if it's okay, I'm going to draw another parallel to the golden trio. Yes. Love it. We see their patterns, which we have already speculated formed early on in their life. Um, like we see those change um, and like grow and deepen. So as those three in the golden trio, like their, their relationships with one another and with other people as they deepen they learn to rely on each other and on like in Harry's case leaning on mentor figures adult figures for once in his life um, we see Ron and Hermione like they are, end up actually getting together and being able to have a mature <laughs> relationship like share their feelings with one another they support one another through some like really difficult times um, and even work their way through a pretty serious rift in their relationship in the Deathly Hallows uh, and like we see Harry who eventually learns to lean on his friends and his adult figures and he develops a close like emotionally intimate relationship with Ginny and like over time he grows to the point uh, this is so cool he grows to the point where he's able to like independently take the risk he's able to walk into the forbidden forest alone and do what he needs to do because he knows he has that secure base Mm -hmm. And I just think that's so cool. They can change. And like, I, I mean, sometimes we draw these, these parallels to fiction, and they're a little um, idealistic, but I've, I've seen it happen, y'all, it can happen in real life. We can all get yeah. to that, like, that all was well point. That's it's really struck me what you just said about Harry being able to go into the forest, because he has that secure base. And it 
I love looking at it from this perspective. Obviously, you can interpret it a bunch of different ways, but looking at it at this moment, like Harry has finally, through through everything that has happened, through his connection to Ron and Hermione, and these connections he's built with uh, the the numerous parental figures in his life um, who are gone, but now he has a secure enough base, you know, through all of that, through everything that's happened, he's learned a way to find healing and security, even, even without, you know, uh, without having, you know, Sirius in his life forever or Dumbledore in his life forever, that there are enough, uh, there's enough repair and enough change that's been made in him internally that he has that within himself now he is his own secure base at this point he did it absolutely yeah yay harry (laughs) and we know spoiler alert he got to come through that and come back to his secure base and like live out his life and be a functional adult yeah ultimately all was well and i love that yeah it's beautiful and he was able to overcome all of his hardship and so as we move into kind of our sort of nearing the end of our discussion about trauma um i'm curious to know in in looking at all of this you know we've kind of talked about different things that people could do but um how how do we keep these traumatic hardships from determining our life course and being more like Harry and determining for ourselves what our future is instead of letting our past do that by itself? Okay. So I think one of the most important things that we can do is take a page from the golden trios book and find our tribe. Um, I think that relationships are so, so important. Um, Sometimes that can mean making difficult decisions and like changing relationships if some of the ones that you have aren't healthy, if they're kind of um, like fueling a negative attachment style, if they're um, not helping you. But ultimately, finding the right social relationships can just be so important in the healing process or in helping us be ready to cope with whatever comes, even if you're not currently trying to heal from a trauma or from some other experience, um, just being ready for what does come. Um, And we've said it several times already, but therapy, I mean, things are going to happen. We are, again, no matter whether you already had that secure base, you've already found your tribe, you have a super solid foundation, things are gonna happen. And when they do, going to therapy, reaching out to the people around you for help can always help you from having that change the like trajectory of the rest of your life. Absolutely. You can find your own all was well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as we come to the end of our time here, uh, I just want to know if you have any final words of wisdom, advice, or Anything else you want to share with anyone who's listening to us right now? Um, So I think that this is something that has also been discussed on previous episodes, but I think it's important, so I'm going to emphasize it. Um, I talked about uh, 
getting therapy and maybe finding your tribe, the Harry Potter fandom is an excellent place to find your tribe. 35 people to sign up for my course in the spring who want to learn about Harry Potter and trauma. And if I can find people with interests in such a small niche is that you can find your tribe. So don't don't stop looking. I think it's sometimes easy to stop looking, especially in a world where we are so often Mm -hmm. across, Mm -hmm. you know, there are screens separating us from each other. Um, So it's as sometimes difficult as screens can make life. It is nice to know that uh, the online fandom is there in a way to unite us. And there are lots of Harry Potter fan events you know, fandom communities in real life, you know, there are fan clubs and Quidditch teams and meetups and conventions. So I think that's perfect advice. Your tribe is out there. We are just, uh, you know, (laughs) we're just doing Harry Potter things all the time. So come find us. (laughs) (laughs) Katie Lauren, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and this wonderful, wonderful information and, uh, Yeah, just thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much for letting me talk about the things I love. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much, Katie Lauren, for being on the show with us. I hope that everyone listening enjoyed this discussion. As I mentioned on the last episode, we recently launched our Patreon, and I wanted to thank our patrons for all their support. It really means so much to us. This episode's shout-out goes out to Kimber Ford. Thanks for being a part of Beyond the Veil. If anyone listening is a mental health professional or researcher who wants to join us on the show to talk Potter and mental health, or maybe you're not a professional and you have a personal story of how Harry Potter helped you with your mental health, please send an email to beyondtheveilpod at gmail.com or fill out our submission form linked in the show notes. We would love to have you as a guest. If you want to check out our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash beyondtheveilpod. Join me next time for another conversation in the headmaster's office. Take care. Take care.